Welcome to Swisspreneur, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan and I will be your host. On today's episode, we welcome Christian Meiser. He's the founder and CEO of the tech-powered law firm Lexer, based in Zurich. His company supports startups with their legal challenges and supports them with professional startup legal support. On today's episode, we will talk about why the right lawyers can save your company millions of dollars, what you actually can do yourself and save a lot of money by doing it, and where you need professional legal support. And also, if you need the professional support, how much you should actually pay the lawyers for their services. As always, there is additional content available on our social media. So check out our Facebook and Instagram to access the additional information of today's episode. One more thing before we start the show. The wrong legal partner can cost you millions, as we'll hear in the upcoming episode. Vislaw, a personal and hands-on law firm, is here to support you with their broad expertise in business law. Visit Vislaw, that's W-Y-S-S-L-A-W.ch to learn more about the entrepreneurial spirit of today's presenting partner. Christian, very well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's an honor to have you here today. Thank you, Silvan, for having me. We're going to talk about legal advice for early stage startups. And I would like to start with the first question right away. What mistakes do you see Swiss startups making repeatedly when it comes to the legal part of doing business? There are a couple of uh, various sectors where startups make frequent mistakes, and it's actually similar across the world. And I brought three small examples to illustrate the three categories. One is in contractual negotiations, where partnership agreements can take an ugly turn. The other thing is about the corporate setup, especially with co-founders, where there can be disputes between the co-founders. And the third one is the regulatory aspects that some startup founders have found themselves in ugly situations. Cool. The, the first uh, case I brought is, is from the United States. It's, you know, uh, the Beats by Dre, the headphones. Yes. So what, what many people don't know, it wasn't actually Dr. Dre that came up with the idea of high quality headphones and sticking a brand name on them to sell them afterwards. Initially, it was a entrepreneur that pitched that idea to Dr. Dre and Iovin, which is, is a music producer, and told him, look, I have this company that produces high quality uh, sound devices. We're working on a high quality um, headphone and we'd love to collaborate with you and have Dr. Dre put his name on it. They negotiated long and it uh, was a winding negotiation and the entrepreneur wasn't well represented legally. They finally signed a cooperation agreement and after a couple of years of success, there was a clause which Dr. Dre and Iovin used to get out of the contract uh, with very little cost and they bought out the, um, uh, the founder, Monsters, was their company, and a couple of years later sold the company for billions. And the guy with the idea ended up with a couple of millions out of the out of the entire partnership. Yeah, I, I can imagine that this, yeah, that pretty much sucked to the guy who invented the whole Absolutely. thing. Absolutely, and it was one clause that ena enabled them to get out of the contract in case of a change of control. 
and they sold part of their joint venture to another company, which then allowed them to sell out the stake of the other guy at a low price. Oh, a couple so, of years later, yeah, they were billionaires out of that. That was a pretty expensive uh, legal mess up, if I can call it that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was the second example that you have prepared? Second example is a more famous example even is of a co-founder dispute is the Facebook case with yes. Mark Zuckerberg and the Winklevoss twins. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, of course, various sides of how the story evolved, but you see that over and over and over again with startups, a couple of guys coming together saying, hey, I have this great idea. Yes, let's do it together. Oh, you bring this to the table, you can do this. And all of a sudden, one co-founder says, oh, actually it was my idea, I do it on my own. Uh, or the other co-founder saying, hey, I did all the work, why should you get part of this? And you see that happening in almost every startup that has more than one founder, that at some stage you're gonna run into conflicts. Some co-founders can resolve the disputes, many cannot, and that's usually at the early end of a startup. Yeah, I think that's a, a huge uh, sort of breakup point where companies actually fail because of the team dispute that you Absolutely. have internally. And I always say it's similar to when you live together in an apartment with a couple of friends. Everyone thinks they do the most work in the household. Right. And the same logic applies in a startup. You always think, oh, I'm the one doing most. I'm the one bringing the value. Why should the others participate in that value? And that's when, yeah, when the money comes into play and even best buddies from kindergarten can get into ugly disputes. Which is actually pretty sad. And I'm very curious to hear how you will fix that. But yes. before we get there, tell us also your third story that you prepared. The third story is uh, Ross Albrecht. This is a person more known in the blockchain field. He was the founder of Silk Road. Silk Road was an online platform that allowed purchasing and sale of illegal uh, drugs and other things with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. He was one of the very early entrants in the blockchain sphere. He, of course, knew that this is very probably illegal, but he didn't ensure that the setup is proper uh, or didn't even seek legal counsel or simply didn't care. I'm not sure what was his motivation. Anyhow, he got caught finally and he still serves jail time. And that is, of course, one of the worst case scenarios if you move into a regulated area. Uh, for him, particularly sad, he's a brilliant mind and a smart programmer that could have made it anywhere. He chose a path in a field where a lot of the things were still unknown. And he got then also a bit unfortunate that the US wanted to really uh, state an example on him and put him into jail for long term. Well, that's a that's pretty heavy the, ending the, of the, an entrepreneurial the, career. That's uh, a very sad ending to entrepreneurial career. So you mentioned these three different areas. Uh, I'm sure there are more areas that startups should cover. Can you quickly give us an overview about the core areas that you think startups should pay attention to? And then I would like to go into more detail about what that actually means in practice for the companies. Sure. So to facilitate entrepreneurs' um, understanding of legal, we've came up with a simple framework of five areas. Mm -hmm. uh, that's corporate, contracts, regulatory, HR, and intellectual property. 
if you think about these five areas as uh, different sets of where you have to think about as a founder, you already understand a lot about legal and you can conceptualize your problems much easier. Um, there's also tax, which is also a more of an accounting problem. We look at these five main areas as, as the key areas for entrepreneurship. Okay, cool. Yeah. Now let's imagine that we have a, a tech startup. Mm -hmm. We build an app, for example. Yes. Now we are at the very early stage. Uh, we will just uh, close our first uh, funding with some business angels and now really are struggling with the legal aspects of our business. Like what should we pay attention to now? And I would like to start with the first uh, part that you mentioned with the contract law. The contract law for a tech startup, uh, the contract law is mainly about intellectual property, mm -hmm. making sure that the code uh, freelance programmers program for you actually belongs to your company. That's a prime example. Or when you enter into cooperation agreements with others, it's clear who owns the code that you're developing or uh, who owns the revenue of that code. So in the contractual side, it's already, it goes already into the intellectual property side, mm -hmm. but the key focus is really how do you protect your core asset? Often it's contractually that you can pro protect a lot and that's where you have to focus on in your freelance agreements but also in your cooperation agreements. Okay. Is there any specific advice that you can give to a tech startup that is in like where's these pairs of shoes right now or is this a highly individualistic case that you have to analyze more deeply? One thing that I see many startups uh, fall into trap into is they they want to enter into a cooperation agreement with someone and they say, oh, I know the person at this company really well. I trust him. Yes, any contract that he provides me with is fine. They shake hands. They send a contract without really reading it. And a year or two later, that trusted person is no longer at the company. Somebody else is at the company and looks at the contract and says, hey, guys, under the contract, actually, you owe us this and that. You haven't delivered, da, da, da. Mm -hmm. And then you get into problems quite quickly. Of course, in the beginning, you have this trusted person. You think, sure. oh, nothing go, can, can go wrong. But you don't sign a contract with a trusted person. You sign it with a company. I think this is something that could really happen to all of us, especially if we are Absolutely. very trustworthy to other people. Mm -hmm. If you are caught up in this situation, what would you recommend the founders to do? Can you sort of try to renegotiate the deal because you originally had it differently in mind? Or is this really hard if the contract that you actually signed says something completely different? One thing that people have to get used to once you incorporate a business, you're in the business to business sector where there's much less protection. When you're a consumer, there's a lot, a lot of laws that protect you. And even if you sign a contract that is extremely unfavorable to you, there may be a law that says, oh, you're actually protected as a consumer. Right. But as a business, there's much less protection. And if you sign an agreement, the law says, well, you're supposed to be smart enough to conduct the business. You just don't get out of it that quickly. Okay. There are extreme scenarios. But uh, mostly in Switzerland, we're very liberal. We say everyone is capable of making his own decisions and mistakes. It's not the law to uh, protect those that are uh, not careful enough to enter into wrong agreements. Right. So the important step is really to initially reach an agreement. Mm -hmm. Most agreements, you don't even need a lawyer 
to really read through a lot of it, just read through it with common sense. And if you find something that you don't think should be in there, uh, escalate it to the other person. And if you still don't get a good explanation, ask a lawyer or a friend about it. Makes sense. I think this is also a very good framework that you just mentioned. So mm -hmm. first you read through it on your own, then you escalate it to the other side. Mm -hmm. And if you still get a satisfactory answer, then you involve your lawyer to also stay a bit, I, I would say more lean and avoid costs that probably, yeah, you know, are not completely necessary. Absolutely, yeah. Um, besides the IP that you have to protect, is there any other thing that you should check with your lawyer as a tech startup? I'm mm -hmm. basically thinking contract law, for example, sales contracts that you do mm -hmm. with your clients, mm -hmm. um, general terms, uh, terms and conditions. Is there anything in, in that area that you should pay uh, also attention to? So there's various, the, the contracts are really the, your communication to the outer world. Mm -hmm. um, and with the sales contract, of course, it makes sense to have a good standard contract that protects your company. Uh, that's usually a contract that's going to get signed a lot of times. Right. Um, there are two sides to this. On the one side, you want to protect your own company. On the other side, you want to make the sales process as seamless as possible. So if you have a sales contract that's difficult to understand or that is too one-sided, you're going to have a bad customer experience for customers as well. So you want to have a lean a uh, contract that protects your uh, your interests, but that also is well understood by the customer. And if there are questions coming up, you can answer them easily. Absolutely. Um, we had a very good personal experience here. Um, All right. In the beginning, when we started this a startup, we had like a three-page contract. Mm -hmm. And whenever we had a sales meeting, they said, I like what you're doing. I would like to, to join. Then we showed them the contract and they said, whoa, 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 I need to read through that first. Mm -hmm. Leave it here. I will get back to you later. Mm -hmm. And that made it really hard to actually close deals. Yes. Then we reduced the whole thing to just one page, made it very simple and very basic. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to close the deals instantly during the meetings. Mm -hmm. So do you have a sort of a best practice there about you know, where you have a good balance between you are able to close when you actually want to close? So not delaying the closing date, mm -hmm. but also being legally on the safe side? Is there like sort of a best practice about what you should cover in such a sales contract? That is a bit sector specific, but one thing, the main thing is really liability. What happens if some, something goes wrong? Right. To what extent are you liable for the damages? For example, for a tech company that provides a piece of software to a customer, the question is that what happens if a virus gets into the systems of your customer and wipes out their entire system. Right. You may have sold them a piece of software that costs 1,000 Swiss francs, mm -hmm. but if it wipes out their entire system, damages may be caused in the millions. Absolutely. And that will be your bankruptcy. Yeah. So these cases, you want to make sure that you limit your liability to, for example, uh, we usually cover it to three times the value of the contract, so okay. you know you have a cap. Of course, if something goes wrong, you provide a certain uh, liability cap and say, hey, we cover 
some of the costs, mm -hmm. but if their entire IT system is wiped out because of uh, your small piece of software, that may have not even been your fault as such. Maybe there was a mistake that you couldn't have known about, but still it was your piece of software and you may be held liable uh, if the circumstances permit. Right. So having a liability cap in place, that certainly makes sense. And other than that, it's just having certainty around what you owe and how much uh, the price is. So having these core pieces in the contract, that is often then just a bad customer experience when there's uncertainty around what the de deliverable is. Mm -hmm. Sounds actually pretty simple, but I, I can imagine that's pretty hard to do very well in practice. It's always a matter of understanding the business of your client well. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes where uh, legal services are uh, not ideal when, when, when the lawyer is not fully up to speed with your business model and sure. doesn't understand your risks exactly. And that's where it's important to have a legal counsel that understands your business well, mm -hmm. or a business person that's legally savvy enough to draft the contract himself. Regarding the sales contracts, is there also, you know, you have the general terms and conditions mm -hmm. that usually also do apply. Mm -hmm. Do you actually need them or is this more like, yeah, you write them, but it's actually not really worth the paper that you write them on? So the general terms and conditions is basically a compromise for the scenario you mentioned. Mm -hmm. You don't want to go there with a 10-page contract. Right. So what you do is you provide them a one-page contract that references to the terms and conditions mm -hmm. that are somewhere on the website or elsewhere, or you give them as well in print, but you say, oh, this is actually the contract. Right. So people see, oh, it's a one-pager, all the important things are on the one-pager, mm -hmm. but they include then the 10-page terms and conditions where you have all the uh, other areas covered, such as data protection uh, and, and other things that are good to have uh, settled somewhere, mm -hmm. but you don't want to have in, in the contract uh, really seen in the sales meeting. The other advantage is when you have terms and conditions, it, it creates the perception that they're general and can't be changed. Often then the one pager would be provided in a Word document that can be easily changed and the terms and conditions in a PDF. Yes. So the PDF cannot be changed that easily, the Word document can, and it creates the perception for the customer, ah, this is general, there I can't change anything. So for the contract negotiations, you can frame it so that uh, the Word document, the, the specific part of the contract is negotiated, the rest isn't. Now moving on to corporate law, that's yes. the second area. Um, what, what would you cover there as a tech startup? What's important to, to have a look at there? So the, the corporate law, it's really to, to it's, it's the internal mechanism of a company is who holds the money and the power of the company. Mm -hmm. So who on the, on the power side, who can take decisions in the company, who can hire and fire people, who can... Uh, decide on the important corporations, who can decide on bringing in new investors or new shareholders. So that's the power structure. And then the money structure is who actually gets what money out of the company uh, in case of revenue coming in, or then for tech startups, often more important in case of an exit five or 10 years down the line. Right. Um, 
tech startups often have a business model where they have to invest a lot of money because they b before they uh, become profitable. So usually they have to get external investors in to fund these development costs in the first years before they actually can then create re generate revenue or sometimes like Uber, you never generate revenue, but you still have an exit down the line. You just need a lot of capital from external investors to fund you until that exit moment. Mm -hmm. The question with investors always is uh, how much do the investors get to say in your company? Mm -hmm. Do they have veto rights for certain decisions or to get a board seat? And then even more importantly, how much of a stake do you get in they get in the company and there it's important to very carefully look at the uh, terms negotiated in the shareholders agreement um, with the investors maybe already a step before that if you're a tech company with multiple founders if you're two three co-founders make sure that you have a sound corporate setup and you discuss with each other what happens if one guy leaves after one year right what does that actually mean? How should you do this? What are like the best practices there? And how do you actually also document that? Like, do you put that in writing? Uh, how should you store that? Can you give us more insights on that part? Sure. So it should definitely be in writing. It's called the shareholders agreement in the end, where the shareholders, be it founders or investors, uh, state very clearly uh, what happens in what case. They can get very detailed that detailed and can, can be dozens of pages of just outlining in case uh, a co-founder quits, this is what happens. What happens if he quit because he did, his girlfriend moved to Australia and he also wanted to move to Australia? Sure. What happens if he doesn't show up for work anymore and there's a dispute and mm -hmm. he's being fired? Um, all these questions are settled. And part of the process is, is really documented in, in, uh, in the shareholders agreement. Uh, and there are templates for that that make that rather easy. But almost a more important step is actually talking about these things. Mm -hmm. It's often difficult in the beginning because you're best friends, you have this great vision and you only see the great scenario of an exit in five years where you're all billionaires. <laughs> but it's very important to also discuss in the other cases what happens if it doesn't go that way. You don't want to end up like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and the Winklevoss twins, right? Exactly, exactly. Is there any like best practice? You mentioned there are templates that you can use. Mm -hmm. Do you have a specific example where people looking for these documents could find it? Sure. Um, there are, um, you, you find quite a few templates online. Then for the investments from a venture capitalist, mm -hmm. there are the SECA model clauses uh, available online. Uh, an important thing to note is they've been written uh, by uh, or provided by a private equity association. Mm -hmm. So they're more on the investor friendly side. They are quite well balanced, but there are some provisions that the founders should uh, look very careful at. Um, and the important part of it is not only getting a template and signing it, the important part, I think, is really the psychological part of the expectation management. So people know in advance what happens if this happens. And if you've dis uh, discussed it once, 
the chances are much lower than two years that two years later somebody says no but i understood it completely differently mm -hmm. because you can get into a dispute anytime regardless of whether you have a good agreement or not there's always ways to get into a dispute mm -hmm. if you have the expectations managed right the chances drop significantly Maybe we can also get a bit into more details of the shareholder agreement, because I think this is a very important topic mm -hmm. to also set realistic uh, expectations for people mm -hmm. listening to this. So let's have a look at the founders first. So mm -hmm. you usually also state how much they should work in such a shareholder agreement, because that is sort of part of mm -hmm. them earning the shares uh, fully, because they are usually vested. So Correct. if they leave earlier, they do not receive uh, the full amount of shares. Correct. Do you have any best practice on the vesting schedule, how that should be prepared, basically? So in Switzerland, you see a move towards uh, the American model, which is typically four years vesting with a one year cliff. So that means after one year of working uh, with the company, you, you will get one fourth of your allocated shares. And then on usually a quarterly uh, or uh, semi-annual basis, you will vest your additional shares. So after four years, you will have your full stake. That is a typical model. Mm -hmm. um, that's typical from the, from the Silicon Valley as well. That makes sense. We also had a co-founder mm -hmm. that had to leave our company mm -hmm. and we were on an annual vesting schedule. Mm -hmm. And it was a bit a bad timing because we decided to uh, let go of him in January, mm -hmm. but the investing actually ended at the end of December. So there was like, sort of another 25% um, that was sort of transferred to him. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend it to avoid these situations? Would you recommend to have like a monthly vesting schedule? Would that be something that you recommend? It's always balanced between uh, as well the administrative uh, costs of having, uh, especially when you have a stock option plan, where you, when you have monthly vesting for 20 employees, mm -hmm. it gets somewhat burdensome. So we often see in quarterly or uh, semi-annual, that's usually okay. sufficient. Annual is quite harsh. Yeah. Also, what happens often is the contrary to what you say, that on the day before the west vesting, people are terminated. Right. That would be the more typical example yeah. of what then happens. Which is pretty mean, to be honest. <laughs> Absolutely. But it happens if money is in the game, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. A uh, second thing that I would like to talk about is how to deal uh, with investors. Um, usually they have more rights on such a shareholder contract than the founders. Mm -hmm. Talking about liquidation preference or pre-buying options. Mm -hmm. Can you also elaborate on how to handle this and what the best practices look like there? Mm -hmm. So for the investor side, a general remark maybe before you take on investors, uh, startups should very uh, do a due diligence on the investors as well. You always hear on the due diligence on the startup, but it should be the other way around to speak to other startups that were uh, in collaboration with these investors to see how did they handle, were they fair game or did they exploit their power to the fullest? Right. Because at the end of the day, you invite someone else uh, to your party, so to say, mm -hmm. and they get quite significant rights it with board seats that can be used to exert quite a bit of power in the decision-making process. Um, and then on the financial side, that's the more important thing, liquidation preference. That's uh, typically in Switzerland, a 1x liquidation preference. So what that means, 
uh, is that the investors will get their money back first. And the tricky thing in the negotiations is that you as a startup, you always pitch the best case scenario to the investors. You tell them, look, you invest 1 million now, it's going to be 10 million in five years. And uh, that's the scenario you tell them. And in the contract negotiations, the investors will then say, okay, that's all fine, but we still want to have liquidation preference that in case it doesn't go so well, we get paid first. Mm-hmm. So an example where the investor invests 1 million and startup is sold for 1.2 million after uh, five years, mm-hmm. the investor get his full million back first, even though he may only have 20% of the shares. Right. And the other money is then only distributed among the remaining shareholders. So uh, you stand there as the founder, you've put in five years of your life, uh, you actually created something that was worth over a million, but at the end you, you stand there with, with much less. But I mean, that's pretty standard of the industry and to a certain degree, I guess it's also part of, of the game that you play. And that's when you should care, consider carefully whether you really need investors and how much money you need. That's, sure. that's uh, uh, something that's a bit of a culture. Wow, I raised money. It's amazing. And only later you realize, well, there are strings attached to this money. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you would like to add to the corporate law section that we have not talked about yet? One thing is uh, that there is a lot of development going on in the corporate law sector, sector, especially when you look at different ways of getting funded. There are more and more alternatives to the traditional uh, friends, fools, family rounds and VC investments. There are more and more crowdfunding uh, investment opportunities out there for Mm -hmm. startups. And I would look at various options when you have when you are a startup founder of how, how do we get funded. And that, I guess, also has different legal implications. Absolutely. So one thing is the, the blockchain enables different ways of crowdfunding and also administrating your, uh, your shares mm-hmm. and your shareholders. And we're working there on a few exciting projects with Alithina to, uh, we've tokenized shares already, but there are many interesting things that you can do when a share is actually digitalized and you can move the property uh, digitally uh, and securely and let them interact with smart contracts. So there can be stock option plans or a shareholders agreement that are executed automatically. And for anyone who knows, the administrative burden of a cap table and stock option plan management and so forth. This is, is a great uh, relief, but it also enables many more things to do with your shares, uh, which you're working on. So the, there are interesting things coming in the corporate sector as well, thanks to blockchain. Is this also more expensive to execute currently than the traditional way? It's less expensive. Uh, wow. at the end of the day because you don't you do not need currently when you want to transfer a share from one shareholder to another shareholder you need need a written deed of assignment mm-hmm. and then this has to be communicated to the company and the company has then update uh, usually the excel file where they have yeah. their uh, their shareholder uh, register um, and this is quite of a, an administrative burden with documents being sent around mm-hmm. uh, on the blockchain. It's as simple as pressing a button. 
sounds very promising. So we look forward to the to the future in that regard. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Now let's move to the third part that you mentioned, the regulatory law. Mm -hmm. What does a tech startup has to look for in that area? Mm -hmm. So regulation is very sector specific and there's a few regulations that are cross sector. This is data protection, uh, which has become more and more important in the past couple of years with the EU pressing ahead with the GDPR regulation and the awareness has really risen in Switzerland as well due to the changes in the EU, mm -hmm. which in Switzerland will uh, most likely be enacted quite soon as well. So that is one thing to think about. How do you, pro how do you process personal data? Um, and that varies as well from tech startup to tech startup. But what every startup processes is HR data of its own employees and then marketing data. Mm -hmm. And to make sure to do that in a compliant manner is, is a compliance issue, but also a reputational issue. People don't like being sent emails without having ever consented to receiving them. Right. Um, so that is something to be aware of. And then the sector-specific regulation, that really depends. What we see a lot here is fintech startups in Switzerland because we have a strong financial sector mm -hmm. and now have uh, a strong blockchain crypto scene as well. There are many uh, startups that want to do something in the financial market uh, and there you simply have to be uh, very cautious of what regulations apply because the financial market is one of the most regulated sectors there is. That makes sense but I think it's hard to to really come up with a general statement about how you should handle this because it's very industry and case specific about what your tech startup actually does. It's talk to people that have done similar things, uh, check out their websites, see what they had to be doing. Did they get uh, licensed by FINMA? Uh, that can be a first indication of whether you're actually moving in a regulated sector or not. Mm -hmm. And then also speak to a lawyer at some stage when you have a more concrete idea about where you want to go. Um, we've also seen that it can make sense to involve uh, a lawyer in your founding team in a highly regulated industry because your solution is to some extent driven by the regulatory environment, especially what can I do without the license? For what do I need a license? So what is the logical steps of my product? First, you usually want to go in a non-licensed area to test it, to have an MVP there and then think about how you can expand into maybe a licensed area and how the licensing process is then structured. Cool. The next category that you mentioned is intellectual property law, mm -hmm. IP law. What does a tech startup has uh, to tackle there? You already mentioned briefly that it's important to pr protect the IP mm -hmm. with your working contracts or freelance contracts. Mm -hmm. What else should you pay attention to? There are different types of intellectual property and one is relevant for tech startups is always the software. Mm -hmm. The software code is actually quite difficult to protect legally. Uh, it's important that you own the software code. Um, it's equally important to ensure that other companies cannot simply copy your software code and the one-to-one -one copy of your software is actually protected. So software is protect by copyright law. Mm -hmm. So the actual code, you cannot copy paste as another company. But what you can is copy the idea behind it. And the issue with software is, it's not really the actual code 
where the idea comes from, so, but, uh, or where the value is, but it's actually the idea. And when a coder sees code, he can easily write code that does the same thing, mm -hmm. but looks completely different. Yes. So that makes it difficult to protect software and what companies often do to protect their source code is simply not disclose it. Like the Google search algorithm is only known by a handful of people. Right. So like the Coca-Cola recipe as well, you simply don't disclose it to make sure it's protected. So that's the best protection that you sort of recommend for software, it's of, it often makes sense, especially when the software is so crucial to, to your business, as for example, the, um, uh, the source code of the Google search algorithm. Um, then there's always, uh, th there's also different categories of intellectual property. One is patents. Patents is um, an, an, uh, an invention. Typically, it's a physical um, good or piece of hardware that can be protected with a patent. Uh, software is difficult to patent. That's why it rarely applies for uh, software-based tech startups. Mm -hmm. But in the hardware sector, it's very important to ensure on the one side that you don't breach a patent with your idea and on the other side that you do patent your uh, technological invention um, as, as widely as possible. Then you also have uh, additional IP rights that you can protect if you want to, like your brand, for example, I yes. could imagine. How mm -hmm. should you handle that as a startup? Um, there is the brand name and some companies live off their brand names, such as Coca-Cola is a prime example of a brand or Nestle is a prime example of a highly valuable brand name that is protected with trademark law. So there's a register where you can register your name or your logo and then forbid anyone to use the same logo or brand name for the same type of products. Mm -hmm. um, if you have an intention of growing and investing in uh, your brand name, it's very important to protect it accordingly and early on. And also, again, make sure that there's no pre-existing brands that, that are similar or uh, the same. Uh, there's often frustration in the name-finding process of startups. Uh, already, it's difficult emotional topic amongst co-founders usually um, and the frustration stems from the fact that once they found an agreement between each other you as a lawyer often have to tell them look there's a brand name that's maybe not exactly the same but almost the same so you run a high risk of being then persecuted by that other company. And is this something where you recommend to have a lawyer supporting you to, to check whether your brand or your brand name that you have in mind is already protected in some sort? Or is this something that the founders could also do themselves? You can do an initial uh, search yourself. I mean, already Googling for the term, is there another company out there? Then there's the commercial register where you have the company names. Then you have the Swiss uh, trademark register where, where you can do an initial search as well. If you, uh, it depends then a bit if you're a small startup that has 20,000 Swiss francs as capital to get something started and you're bootstrapping, do it yourself before you go to a lawyer. Uh, but also be aware that your brand name may have to be changed after a year or two. If your 
idea is really around your brand and you want to build, for example, a, a label, a clothing label, mm -hmm. invest the money up front into a lawyer for some proper research because changing your brand name means basically start from scratch again. Absolutely. The last point that you mentioned, which is important for early stage tech startups to tackle, mm -hmm. is HR law. Mm -hmm. What are the important topics in that area? Um, the HR is really how you attract and retain talent, on how do you incentivize people to work for you. And one part of that is being a young startup. Many people enjoy the freedom and the excitement of building something new and, and, and creating uh, a new vision from nothing which already attracts people. But then there's other, of course, after a year or two, you may also want to think as an employee, hey, it would be nice to participate in the success. I spend all my weekends working for this company. Uh, I get a horrible salary, <laughs> half of market value. I would like to participate somehow in the success. And that's where employee stock option plans come into a place where you can incentivize your employees by giving them uh, part of your success. That is one thing you can think about. The other thing you have to think about is just standards. Uh, make sure your uh, employment contracts give the company all the intellectual property that the person develops during his work time. Mm -hmm. That's an important part. One thing many people don't know is that it requires a written form agreement to have this assignment. So you cannot docu-sign your employment contracts. That's uh, a which, very important point to mention. <laughs> absolutely. So many people and we use DocuSign for as many contracts as possible. But with deployment agreements, you say, do it, ink it. It's just uh, safer. Makes sense. The other uh, topic to look out for is the notice period of termination. Mm -hmm. So how long uh, do you have to keep on an employee after uh, terminating or firing him? Or how long... Does the employee still have to work after he wants to leave? Mm -hmm. um, many founders think in the beginning, oh, it's important that they can't just leave from one day to the other. But what happens often is that the startup has an idea and says, all right, we're going in this direction. And after a year, they notice, oh, actually, it doesn't really work. Instead of developers for Java, we need now something completely different. Mm -hmm. And they have to let go half of their team. Right. And if they then have a notice period of six months, that's six months salaries they have to pay without having uh, a job for these guys. Absolutely. And that's a very expensive. Uh, what would you recommend there? More towards one month or something in between? We usually recommend one month for unless there is really a special need for that specific person. But usually even if the relationship has deteriorated to the point that the person wants to leave or you want to let him go, it's better to have a shorter period. So typically we say extend the, um, uh, the trial period to three months and uh, keep the uh, notice period to as low as possible, which is one month in the beginning. Absolutely. I fully agree on that topic. Yeah. Um, there's also a part uh, about non-competes when someone has to leave a company or wants to leave a company, how long they should not be allowed to work for a, a company doing something pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you would recommend startups to include in their contracts? And if so, how should that look like? What is 
Very important is to have a post-contractual confidentiality obligation so they cannot disclose the, the secrets they've learned at the company mm -hmm. to the next. With the non-compete, it's always a, a difficult topic because they're often not even enforceable. Uh, if you've included them or if you include them, they have to be very specific and it depends a bit on the sector as well, what you can do and what you cannot. Mm -hmm. So we're usually um, a bit cautious on having a strict non-compete in the contract. Right. And about the non-disclosure, how should that look like? Um, should there be any penalties if they sort of don't follow the rule that they actually signed up for or how should you handle this? We usually recommend against penalties because it scares away people. I personally would probably not sign a contract that has a high penalty in it. Yeah. Uh, and if the penalty is so low that it doesn't really matter, then you can leave it completely. Um, Makes sense. Yes. Then the other thing that you also talked about is uh, stock options. Mm -hmm. I think a very important topic uh, because as you also mentioned, mm -hmm. startups are usually not able to pay market salaries, but mm -hmm. the options that you can get can be a, a very good compensation if everything works according to the plan. Mm -hmm. How should the stock options um, sort of be worked out? And can you also give us some specific examples about the percentage allocation? Mm -hmm. I know this is a very business-driven decision, mm -hmm. but you've seen a lot of companies and I'm just curious mm -hmm. to see what are the best practices in terms of how they actually set up the uh, stock options and how much percentage they allocate per employee. There are two main ways to implement it. Either it's you provide them with employee stock options, mm -hmm. which is an actual option for the employee to later purchase a share at a certain price of the company. Or then there are the phantom stock option plans where you provide the employees the mirror as if they owned shares of the company. Mm -hmm. So in case uh, of a later exit, they simply get a lump sum amount or that they would have received if they had held X amount of shares in the company. Uh, the decision is largely tax-driven um, because it has different tax implications mm -hmm. and uh, it, there you have different, uh, you, sh you should look at where the main shareholders are based, in which canton and where is the company based and also what is the expected change in value of the company. If you have an expectation of a 50x case where the shares will uh, have 50 times the value in 5 or 10 years, you should try to allocate the actual shares as early as possible to the employees mm -hmm. because the capital gain in Switzerland is tax-free um, and that can make a big difference. Um, then again, you have to look at a bit of the administrative burden as soon as you allocate shares. Uh, you have to invite them to the shareholders meetings and there are additional administrative hurdles of assigning the shares to them, whereas a phantom stock option plan is quite easy in the administration. Mm -hmm. Just to, to make sure here, because I think the tax implications are mm -hmm. super important mm -hmm. uh, that people don't pay enough attention to, I mm -hmm. can imagine. Mm -hmm. So which one is more favorable, the options that you get or the phantom stocks? The options are the more tax favorable um, because in the phantom stock, this is treated like salary, no matter what. 
So the full amount you receive under Phantom Stock Option Plan is first taxed as uh, for Social Security and then taxed as income on the level of the employee. Yeah. I think that's a very important message to uh, make people aware of. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that startups should uh, take care of in the HR law area? Again, I, I think it's again the same thing as with the customer contracts. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that your employees are happy. Uh, and on the same side, you want to protect your company as much as possible. So there should be a good balance between protecting the company from a legal side, but making sure as well that the terms are fair and equitable for your employees as well. Mm -hmm. Because your top talent uh, will ask about what the terms are and they will read through the contract. And if the contract is too complex or has a high penalty for uh, or, a, or a strong non-compete in there, they may choose to go to another employer. Absolutely. I think these are five very interesting and very good core areas that the startup should focus on. Mm -hmm. Now I would like to focus a bit more on the collaboration between the startup and their legal partner. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can summarize, I think you, you already mentioned in, in parts of your answers, but maybe you can summarize why it's important for a startup to really have a good and strong legal partner on their side. So there are multiple sides to why a legal partner can make sense for a company. Um, one thing we see a lot is founders saying, oh, I don't need a lawyer, I can do this myself. Mm -hmm. They go online and you find a lot of things online. And we distinguish between complexity levels. So we say yeah, there's low complexity things like your own privacy policy or there's having a standard employment agreement. Usually people figure out themselves and it works out in most cases. Then there's the medium complexity level where uh, like implementation of a stock option plans or a seed financing round um, or basic intellectual property, trademark filings, that people, even that savvy people can figure out to a more or less satisfactory basis. And then there's the high complexity things. It's like applying for a license with FINMA, patent applications, larger financing rounds, where you anyhow need a legal counsel. Otherwise, uh, you, you won't find your way through it. And even uh, most legal counsels would not know what to do themselves and would have to refer to an actual expert. So what we see a lot happening is that first founders try to figure out themselves. And often it's like when you go to the doctor, you don't really know uh, what you're doing and you can self-medicate on Google. And probably most of the times you may just have the flu and then you can self-medicate. But then there's always a tail risk that you fell into a high complexity case without being aware of it. Yeah, I so, think that's a good summary. <laughs> so, so, so one part of it is really, if you do it yourself, a lot of things you can do yourself, but you're going to invest a lot of time into finding out what do I need? Uh, is it the right thing? Is that template that I download still current? Or was that written 10 years ago before the law changed? Um, so you spend a lot of time yourself that you could, that you have opportunity costs for. Um, and then you have legal uncertainty. 
And the question is, how much legal uncertainty and how much time do you want to spend on your st uh, on on the legal uh, side of things? Yeah. I think this is sort of like a matrix where you can decide on your own depending mm -hmm. on what's more important to you. Absolutely, and. It's again uh, a bit uh, matter if you're bootstrapping a company and you know, hey, we just want to get a first MVP out and do customer research, market research. We don't really execute on anything uh, yet. You can still get away with quite a bit without consulting uh, a lawyer. But as soon as you get more serious about the idea, it's very, uh, you save a lot of time. And it's a lot of sleepless nights if you talk to a lawyer that can guide you in the very beginning and say, oh, actually, HR, that's not a problem. Don't worry about it. On the corporate side, look at this thing more uh, profoundly. And oh, in the regulatory side, be very careful. There's this new law that says this and that. Here you should really look at more closely. And with, within half an hour, usually a lawyer can tell you more than you would find out in a week. Right. Cool. Um, I think it's also very important to sort of distinguish between the quality of a good and a bad lawyer. Mm -hmm. Something that I found personally very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. we, we were part of a startup program and there we got sort of vouchers to mm -hmm. use at the, at the local lawyer, mm -hmm. but then actually had to find out that they were not familiar to work or deal with startups at all. Mm -hmm. So we were actually, we ended up spending all the vouchers and they even wanted to, to bill us for additional hours, mm -hmm. but didn't solve the problems or answer the questions that we have, but just had a lot of effort and time that they put into this. Mm -hmm. So for us, this was a very bad quality experience. Mm -hmm. How do you suggest startup founders, especially first-time founders, go about finding the good quality lawyer and also learn how to distinguish between good and bad lawyers for their startup? Mm -hmm. I think it's like finding a, any supplier in an area where you yourself don't have expertise. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you evaluate, evaluate something that you are not sure about? And I think part of it is talking to the lawyers first uh, in a face-to-face -face meeting. Most lawyers will give you half an hour of free advice. If they don't, don't bother anymore. They will overcharge you anyhow. Use that first half an hour, talk to three, four different firms and get a sense how they work. Do they even understand your business? That's often uh, a huge problem that they don't understand your business model or they don't understand your technology that you're building. So get a feeling, ask them questions uh, around, uh, do you understand that? Is that clear? And test them a little bit. Um, then the second uh, thing is get references, ask other people that have worked with these lawyers, especially, and that's an important point, a good lawyer doesn't equal a good lawyer. There are good lawyers in financial market law, but they may be a horrible divorce lawyer Yes. Uh, and vice versa. So ask the people that have worked on a similar problem with that lawyer, if possible, or ask a lawyer for references. Mm -hmm. um, they usually um, are reluctant to give it out, but some of them may actually give out references as well. So you can talk to the people that have worked with them, that had similar problems, have been in a similar sector, and that allows for a, more be uh, more, a better vetting process.
I think this is very good advice. So you should also do your due diligence on the legal partner Absolutely. that you choose for your startup. Like any supplier, you should make sure that that supplier is uh, understands your business, is in for a long-term relationship with you, and that is trustworthy uh, relationship that you build with him. The next point, now you found the right legal partner, which is very important to startups, is pricing. Mm -hmm. How do you budget for legal costs and mm -hmm. how much should you actually sort of calculate with to cover the five different areas mm -hmm. as we go for our tech startup that we mentioned in the example? Mm -hmm. How much money do you need to cover mm -hmm. uh, for these expenses? Mm -hmm. So the, the example uh, that you mentioned before of going to a lawyer, having vouchers and then even spending more than expected, that is one thing that uh, we try to tackle, tackle really with transparency uh, in fees. Mm -hmm. uh, what you can do with any law firm is ask for first a fee estimate upfront before you engage them and then even a fee cap. So they say, all right, for this piece of work, it's going to cost me that amount and not more. Um, they will more and more lawyers used to be reluctant to give fee caps, but it's getting more and more established. So that's one thing you can do. Should this be a red flag if they don't offer a, a fee cap that you should not work with them at all? I wouldn't. There are, to be honest, there are certain cases where it's really difficult to provide a fee cap because you simply don't know how much effort it's going to be. Okay. But for most uh, law, uh, startup legal needs, uh, a lawyer that knows what he's doing also knows how much work that's going to be put in a specific. Right. So ask for a fee cap with a clear definition of the scope. So you know, okay, that's included. Mm -hmm. And also ask them, hey, if there's anything that you think is not included, tell me before you start billing. Because the topic is then, of course, oh yeah, no, that was outside of the scope. Then, of course, I started billing and then you again end up with the high legal fee. Yeah. So talk about fees up front. What we're trying to do is really bring transparency in the, uh, in the user experience of getting legal services by having published fee fees for certain areas. Um, one thing is for startup founders that we've been uh, talking to and working with for a lot. Uh, the first idea was to provide them with a subscription model so they could uh, have their legal bill spent across 12 months, mm -hmm. for example. Um, what has worked even better now and that what we are launching in the next couple of days is a full flat fee so startups know, hey, for a certain flat fee, I'm ready to go from a legal perspective. Um, this covers the legal needs for about 80% of the startups uh, and includes the essentials of all the five areas. So you get your uh, standard terms and conditions done, you get an employment contract, you get advice on your intellectual property strategy, um, you get your incorporation done and a shareholders agreement with founders and you get the data protections on the regulatory side, you get the data protection basic compliance done as well. And if you're uh, like most startups, that's enough to get you going without sleepless nights and worrying and also without excessive legal costs. We currently priced that at two and a half thousand Swiss francs. Which I think is, is pretty fair. 
how does that compare to other law firms? Is that below, above, or around average price? So what's important to note and why we can provide this rate is that uh, we said you don't have to reinvent the wheel as a startup. So in the things that we provide, about 80% or 70 or 80% is uh, copy-paste or automated process in the background and 20 to 30% we specifically tailor to the startup. Mm -hmm. So we can automate and standardize a large portion of our effort, uh, which improves quality because it's time-tested standard that has been used before and it lowers cost because it's automated. What you get with other law firms is uh, case-specific setup from the be- beginning to end. So they usually don't automate their processes, but will then take uh, out the previous contract or incorporation and adjust manually the Word files. Um, this, in the end, increases costs for them and they rarely uh, are competitive with these rates. Uh, what we also notice, there are uh, online platforms where you can get a lot of these things as well. Mm-hmm. Often, however, they don't cover maybe 70 or 80% of your needs. And then for the spe- specific questions you have, you again would have to go to a lawyer and in the end you spend more as well. Right. So this is after a year of trial and error, the kind of package we think and, and many startup founders think, oh, wow, yes, that's very interactive. Mm-hmm. On the one side, I get advice tailored to my needs. And on the other side, I have the advantages of time-tested, standardized products. Right. Cool. One also important t- topic there is when you're actually starting as an early-stage startup, mm-hmm. at a certain point in time, you also have to actually found your company mm-hmm. as a legal entity. Mm-hmm. There are certain uh, websites that offer these services, and there are, of course, also lawyers, which are at a much higher rate than these uh, websites. What is the best practice from your perspective to found your limited uh, company or your, uh, how do you say that? Uh, yeah, your uh, RK Incorporated or company, yeah, exactly, absolutely. yes. So um, if you really only need to incorporate an RK and that's it, if that's all you need to do, because either you know all the rest already or you have uh, you use that company uh, for uh, if you want to open a bike shop, for example. Right. And you really don't, you already know from your previous employer what the normal, I don't know, I don't know what a bike shop and contracts has. Usually when I repair my bike, there's nothing I have to sign. I just give that's it right. to him. And so the, so the legal setup is really simple. Mm-hmm. They may not even need a privacy policy or they just have a very easy setup. That can be a good choice of saying, I go to these platforms Mm -hmm. and if you then need an insurance anyhow and you need a bank account anyhow, they have partnerships where they can offer the incorporation for almost, I think some of them even for free. Right, yes. Um, If that's your setup, that can make sense. I think for the typical tech startup, there are, uh, and, and what we fo- focus on, there are uh, sector-specific questions that pop up. There's usually a more complex setup with the co-founders or uh, there's just simply the need and the wish to get a bit of more personalized experience. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's where it makes more sense than to go with someone that always also provides you more advice. And I guess this would be additional costs on top of the two and a half thousand that you just mentioned before. The two and a half thousand is really a flat fee package where you say, with these, you're ready to go. Mm-hmm. It is two and a half thousand. We provide you with all the documents plus specified and tailor-made, but also the actual advice to you. So we sit together with, with the startup founders, discuss their setup, point them in the right direction. And after two and a half thousand, they're really ready to go. And it's not that we then charge additional fees for this and then the yeah. paper we used, which we and rarely ever do, and uh, for phone calls and whatnot. So that's really a full flat fee mm-hmm. and uh, without hidden costs except for the register fees and notary fees that uh, are outside of our scope. Okay, but in that flat fee, the company foundation is already included as well? The incorporation is included as well, um, except the commercial register and notary. Uh, There's a trademark registration included, Mm -hmm. uh, but the register fees are also on top. But from the legal side, that's really all you're going to pay. Cool. So I think this gives people a really good understanding about you know, what high legal costs are and what sort of legal costs can be to get you started. I think this is a very good point to mention. The last question that I have uh, written down here is, now you found your legal partner, you got your starter package, Mm -hmm. but there will be additional legal needs as you grow as a company, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. So how does such a collaboration between you, the startup and the legal partner look like? Is this something that comes up case by case whenever you have a need or you want to have a second opinion about a contract that you don't understand? Or is this something that should be more on like a monthly, a quarterly or an annual basis where you also sort of have like check-ins and so on? What is the best practice here from your experience? Mm. So the, the current or the, let's say the traditional model is almost like the dentist. You go to the dentist when it hurts. <laughs> And that's usually not the ideal advice because you should also do preventive measures and tackle the legal problems before they start to hurt. Because then it's usually too late, there's the dispute and you're going into a court case or the intellectual property is gone already, the contract is signed uh, and the startup sold for nothing. Um, So the traditional model due to the high hourly rates is usually that, that companies in general start going to the lawyers too late. Mm-hmm. Larger companies, what they do, they hire an in-house legal counsel that then can be involved in the day-to-day business and understand the company well and alert before it's too late. But for many smaller and medium-sized companies, hiring an in-house legal is not an option because they don't have enough legal work to uh, for in-house legal. So often they, they do a lot of it themselves at high opportunity costs and at high risk as well that later something is going to come up. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the idea behind Lexer as well to really provide small and medium-sized companies with an alternative to an expensive uh, lawyer or an in-house legal that you cannot really fully occupy yet. So we want to be involved and understand the day-to-day business and structure our pricing with a monthly flat fee so that people are not afraid of picking up the phone when they're unsure. So they start asking the questions before it's too late. Mm -hmm. 
And one really important thing that we find is every startup and every entrepreneur and every business has not only different uh, business, of course, that they're running that you need to understand, but also a different mindset when it comes to how they want to tackle legal problems. Mm -hmm. Some say, hey, I just want to be 150% safe. Yes. I'd rather uh, get it checked by two lawyers instead of one. And then there are the more than Mark Zuckerbergs that say, uh, let's move fast and break stuff and let's think about the consequences later. And to adjust and advise in accordance with the risk preference of, a, of an entrepreneur uh, requires close collaboration and that can really bring out the best in a, in a relationship with your lawyer. So I think communication, like in every relationship, is key. And keeping the costs of the communication low improves the communication. And I think that's a key point why we as Lexer can also provide more uh, tailored advice to entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. I think this is a very good point to conclude this episode. Christian, thank you so much for taking the time and providing us with such great legal advice. Oh, thank you, Silvan, for having me. Before we wrap everything up and give you a sneak peek about our next episode, we would like to thank our sponsor, SBB Startup. The Swiss Railways launched their own startup program, so no matter if you're already an established company or just have an idea, they are eager to hear from you if you think that your company or your idea is a good fit to the Swiss Railways. You can get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com and they will support you with internal connections, with coaching, and also are very interested in launching a pilot project with you. So if you think that your product or your idea or your company have the potential to collaborate with the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. We'll already be back with a new episode next week when we will talk to Renato Stalder. He's the CEO of Clara Business, a company that fully digitalizes your financial and accounting processes. This is usually a very boring topic, but Renato adds a lot of personal stories and makes it super entertaining. So you will learn things like what tasks you should focus on as an early stage startup, how much money you should pay professionals to support you on this, and what you can do when a client does not pay his or her bill to your startup company. So I'm sure that you will find some valuable insights there. And I hope to see you again next week for an all new Swisspreneur episode. Until then, have a wonderful day. <laughs>